Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure that we are in fellowship and ready to study the Word. Scripture says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That God is the God of forgiveness, Scripture teaches, from Genesis through Revelation, and that when we come to Him in humility, uh, confessing sin, that He forgives. And the basis for that forgiveness is because sin, the sin penalty has been paid for by Christ on the cross. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, indeed, we're indeed grateful we can come before your throne of grace this evening as we prepare to study your word, that you have revealed yourself to us in these 66 books of Scripture. You have revealed to us that you are the, our creator and that you have created not just the animals, the occupiers of this planet and this, the universe, but you have created the structures, the social structures, the economic laws, the ethical laws that must be followed if there is going to be a blessing, if there is going to be success in life, and that when these are violated, then there is just self-induced misery and uh, there is, uh, there's failure, and then we come under divine judgment. So, Father, we pray that as we study your word, this evening that you might challenge us with as we study, continue our study in economics, that these principles are embedded within the way you structured reality and that as we learn to live and operate in a manner that is consistent with these economic principles, then there is blessing. And when we violate them, then there is judgment and failure. Father, we recognize that many of these principles that we study in relation to uh, in relation to, to economics, also help us understand the debt of sin and the payment of that debt by the Lord Jesus Christ. And because he paid the debt in full by trusting in him, that is applied to each of us individually that we might have everlasting life. Now, Father, help us as we study this evening. In Christ's name, amen. Okay. We've been going through some basic principles of economics. And as I've pointed out in the last several lessons, there are some key principles that are laid down in Scripture. We go back to the Old Testament because in Genesis you have the foundation of everything, and then as we get into Exodus and God gives a legal constitution to the uh, Jewish people and to the Israelites, that will be the, the, the legal document that, that is the basis for their uh, political, political society when they come into the land. We come to understand that there are certain patterns that are embedded within, within God's creation. Now, I'm not saying that we should apply the Mosaic law per se, to, to, to a present environment. That's not the principle. What, we're, what I'm showing is that there are certain principles, certain patterns that were there before the law that were given specific application of these principles within the law 
that sets up sort of a pattern or a model. It's not that uh, any na- other nation should take those those laws uh, directly and specifically because, remember, the constitution that God set up for uh, for Israel was because they were a unique people that were called out by God when he called out Abraham and promised that through them all the nations in the world would be blessed. But by studying the, the, the uh, laws within the Mosaic Covenant, we can come to understand certain principles and patterns that should be present within any sound economic system. Now, I've described this in terms of fence posts and that the fence posts define the boundaries. And as long as an economic system fits within those fence posts, you're in bounds, and a result of obedience of these establishment or universal laws will result in prosperity. Whether you're a believer or unbeliever, uh, it doesn't matter because these laws are given to a nation that was comprised of believers and unbelievers, and they reflect... uh, eternal laws that God embedded within the structure of of uh, society, of his creation. So we have the first was personal responsibility and accountability. Uh, that personal responsibility included uh, work. It included service to God, not work in the sense of labor, but responsibilities that were to be accomplished by Adam and Eve in the garden. This included the right of the creature to, the, to enjoy the rewards of, of his own personal uh, labor. Once again, I didn't I get that fixed. There's a, there we go. Then we studied the third one, the imputation of value, that things have a value that is imputed or assigned to them that only God and that which is directly related to his character has, has uh, implicit value. And that is because he is the only... Uh, one that is eternal. Everything else is created, it's finite, and therefore it has uh, finite value and imputed value. And, of course, understanding imputation is critical to understanding what happens uh, at salvation. We saw that there's a recognition of private property under the sovereignty of God, that God is the one who owns all things, and that man's position as a creator, as a uh, the image bearer of God, creating the image and likeness of God. He is a steward or responsible manager of property, but ultimately the property is God's. It is not the state's. Uh, by that I mean no nation is the ultimate owner of real estate. It is, um, it is to be utilized by each individual owner, and that private property right must be recognized, and this is seen in any number of passages, the most clear of which is the prohibition of theft recognizes individual ownership then we go we go around clockwise the there the validity of wealth what uh, the validity of wealth accumulation the bible never criticizes people for being wealthy simply because they are wealthy in fact the bible uh, supports and encourages the accumulation of wealth and passing down wealth from generation to generation. In the Proverbs, we read that it is the wise father who preserves an inheritance to pass down to his children and his children's children. 
And it is a fool that does not pass down an inheritance and, and wealth for, uh, for his children's children. God is not against the accumulation of wealth. He is against the accumulation of wealth for wealth's sake and for thinking that wealth is designed to bring happiness. It does not. But there are things that are accomplished by those who have money that cannot be accomplished by those who do not have money. This is one thing that is often missed and rarely talked about. In fact, I've never heard a, a pundit or read a pundit, a newspaper pundit, anybody in the media or heard anybody on television talk about the fact that the wealthy provide tremendous advantages to any culture. The public libraries are benefactors. Not the, the, Today they're funded by a certain amount of tax dollars, but historically they have been funded by the generous gifts of individual donors. When you look at the projects in the arts, you look at opera, you look at symphonies, you look at uh, art museums, you look at a, a number of other things, hospitals have been founded and established by the generous donations of wealthy people. And if the government comes in and takes away their whatever they deem to be excess, then it shuts down that uh, that that source of private funding and that emphasis on personal responsibility, that it's the private sector that should provide these things. And historically, it was the private sector that provided these things. We would not have the wonderful uh, cultural things that we have in music, in the arts, in uh, museums, if it were not for the private sector and the donations of individuals. They provide many wonderful things. Too often there's a caricature that the wealthy person somehow just hoards his wealth, that there's a finite amount of money and it can't grow, and that what happens is that the wealthy just hoard the money so that the, the poor can't get to it or the middle class can't get to it. And this is just an absolute distortion of reality. They don't hoard their money. They invest it in corporations. They uh, uh, put it in the bank where it is then loaned out as uh, for mortgages and small business loans and all kinds of other things, and and it it continues to work within within society, which will get will get into the whole idea of of interest and usury in some of the passages uh, we look at this evening. So the Bible supports wealth accumulation, no limits. Then the next thing we looked at. Uh, at the sort of the 7 o'clock, 6.30 position on the chart was tithing. Tithing provided a limited safety net. There was uh, one ten percent tithe, eight, that's redundant, one ten percent that's what a tithe was. There's one tithe that was taken annually for the support of the priests, the Levites and the priests. They were the ones who took care of the tabernacle and the temple and the spiritual needs of the nation, which was a theocracy. So they're functioning basically, they're the bureaucracy that, of the, of the theocracy. Then you had a second tie that was to be used to, to have an annual uh, party based on, uh, based on all that, this tie that came in. And if the party was great, then that meant God was prospering the nation. If the party wasn't so hot, then that meant that God was, uh, something was wrong with the uh, spiritual, uh, uh, spiritual state of the nation. And then I got to the last one here, the personal individual compassion. 
This is your primary safety net. It's the responsibility not of the government to take care of the widows and the orphans and the poor. That third tithe was only t- that took care of the widows and orphans was only was only assessed once every three years. That's a small amount. It was a minimal amount because it was the responsibility of the nation, of the individuals in the nation, the families, to take care of those that were widows, those that were orphans. And what we'll see is every time we see this addressed in the Scripture, either from a positive assessment in the legislation within the Mosaic Law or negatively uh, in, in, in the prophets when Israel is condemned, it, the, the pronouns that are used are always singular. It's always addressed to the individuals within the nation. It's not addressed to the government with a couple of exceptions, and we'll note those exceptions when we uh, get into those passages. So under this principle, we see that the Bible emphasizes compassion and grace, generosity from individuals to provide for those who, for whatever reason, are impoverished or indigent or who, who, for whatever reason, cannot take care of themselves. The principle is laid down in uh, Leviticus 19.18. Leviticus 19.18, the primary part of that is the second half of the verse, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. It's interesting when there are several times, different commands, when God sort of punctuates the end of the command by reminding uh, the reader, reminding the individual of who is saying this. This doesn't come, this doesn't come from the hand of Moses. It's not Moses' law. It's not Moses' opinion. It is the Lord. And he is the one who is making this mandate. And this is uh, considered one of the general mandates that summarizes all the law. Later, when Jesus is on the earth and he was asked what the two greatest commandments were, he said, number one, love the Lord your God uh, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And number two, love your neighbor as yourself. He summarized all of the Ten Commandments that relate to from man to man, from one person to another person summarized all of those as as basically giving uh, examples of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. And then when the question came up, well, who's your neighbor? That's when Jesus gave the uh, illustration of the Good Samaritan. And he chose a Samaritan because the Samaritans were looked down upon by the Jews. They were half-breeds. They were uh, part... uh, uh, Arab part whatever because of the resettlement uh, uh, program of the Assyrians earlier, and they were they were part Jewish. They were just sort of a Heinz 57 variety that had been put into Samaria, and they were looked down upon uh, by, by the Jews. And so, uh, in fact, if you lived in the south in Judea and you wanted to walk to the north in Galilee, you didn't take the direct route and go through Samaria. You would walk. Uh, east and cross the Jordan River and then head up north through Perea, now Jordan on the east side of the Jordan River. And then when you got up to the Sea of Galilee, you would cross back over the Jordan River uh, into Galilee so you wouldn't have to go near any of those unclean Samaritans. And so Jesus illustrates that what it means to be a neighbor, and he shows um, the illustration of a traveler who is 
uh, <coughs> attacked and robbed and left, uh, left injured and l- lost all of his possessions, all of his clothes, and a Samaritan ca- comes along and uh, cleans him up, picks him up, takes him home, gives him clean clothes, new clothes, food, sustenance, everything. And that was an illustration of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. It's not someone he necessarily knew. He didn't know him. So we describe that with the term impersonal love. You don't have to know the person. But it also indicated an unconditional love. It wasn't based on uh, any kind of attraction, uh, any kind of... uh, 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 positive state of the of the of the victim, the Samaritan just took care of him because it was the right thing to do, and treated him in grace. So Jesus defines the neighbor then as anyone who comes in your periphery. So this becomes the the foundational principle for dealing with uh, those who are less fortunate: the widows, the orphans, the poor. The second principle that we see that is an application of that that runs throughout all of the law is the principle of grace orientation. It's mercy. It is undeserved kindness to those who don't necessarily deserve it. Luke 25, 35, we read, if one of your brethren becomes poor, so this is someone who has done well and now they have failed, doesn't explain how they became poor. Maybe they became poor because they made bad decisions. Maybe they became poor because they just live in a down economy, and there was a downturn in the economy, and they lost their job, and now they don't have anything. How they became poor is not the issue in in the law. If one of your brethren becomes poor and falls into poverty, and the way this is expressed, falling into poverty, suggests that this is, it's very similar to the, the expression that James uses in uh, James chapter 1, that when we, uh, whenever we encounter temptation, whenever we're just going through life and then this happens, you know, bad things happen uh, that aren't our fault. Uh, we just happen to turn a corner and something happens. So if one of your brethren becomes poor, falls into poverty among you, then you shall help him. Now, the if clause expresses the condition. If this kind of thing happens, the mandate then in under the, when that condition, when we encounter that condition, then we have a, a mandate. The mandate was then you shall help him like a stranger or a sojourner and that a stranger, a sojourner, stranger refers to a an immigrant, a non-Israelite who is living within the land of Israel, or a sojourner, someone who is just uh, traveling through the land, a sojourner, that he may live with you. Interesting. And the you and the you are here are in the singular, not in the plural. He's not talking to Israel as a corporate group. He is addressing them as individuals. Then in Deuteronomy 15.7, we see another if clause. This is, the, this is uh, the, the laws expressed as case law. There are circumstances that are set up, and then there is a mandate. And so this, when you take several of these cases and put them together, then it provides a precedent for how you would decide other similar type situations. 
if there's a poor man with you, one of your brothers, so in this case it relates to uh, other Israelites. If there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers, in any of your towns in your land, which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your poor brother. Okay, so here's a prohibition. You see someone within the context of the law, you see another uh, Israelite who has fallen on hard times, and it's easy for us to say, well, somebody else will take care of him. But what the Lord says is that you shall not harden your heart towards that person nor close your hand. In other words, this is an idiom. An open hand is giving freely and generously to someone. A closed hand is withholding from someone. And so the mandate here was that they should not uh, close their hand from their poor brother, but you shall freely open your hand to him. Now that word freely is important because that is the expression of grace that this is the same kind of thing that we see exhibited with God's gift of Jesus Christ. It is a free gift, no strings attached. You shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need and whatever he lacks. Now, we'll come back and talk about the lending situation here when I get down to a few verses and we get down to talk about, about usury. But one of the things I want to do as we go through this, this is sort of like a sword drill night. You remember the kids? Maybe when you were a kid in Sunday school, you played sword drill, and the teacher would call out a verse, and everybody turns there to see how fast you can get. I'm going to put some, the central passages are going to be up here on the on the overhead, up here on the screen, but I want you to look at these verses in context. We're going to... Uh, uh, contextualize these because I think it's very important to look at how this is structured. It's rather than just looking at a particular passage as it comes out of uh, out of the context. So, in terms of Deuteronomy fifteen seven and eight, let's turn to Deuteronomy fifteen. Deuteronomy fifteen is dealing with uh, the cancellation of a debt during the sabbatical year. Now, Israel's calendar was set up so that Every six days they worked, and on the seventh day they did not. Why? Because the pattern was set by God. In six days God made the heavens, the earth, the seas, and all that is in them, and on the seventh day he rested. Now, if God, if those days in Genesis 1 were not literal 24-hour days, then some pretty shifty uh, student of the Word could come along and say, well, if God worked for, if those days in Genesis 1 were million-year geological ages, then that would mean that we work for 6,000 years. We don't have to have any holidays. We don't have to take any breaks. We work for 6,000 years or 6 million years, and we'll take the millionth year off. See, that doesn't make any sense. You know, the whole sabbatical principle goes out the door if you change the meaning of days or the length of the days in Genesis 1. God said, for in six days I made the heavens, the earth, the seas, and all that is in them. So we work six days, rest the seventh. Now the resting of the seventh was to show that they were resting in God's provision and that God would supply, God would take care of things. And then that was extended to the sabbatical year so that they would work six years and then rest the seventh year. And during the sabbatical year, they would not put the 
the land into production, and it would lie fallow for the year so that it could uh, uh, be restored to its uh, natural vitality and be productive for the next seven years. And then every seventh cycle of seven years, which would be the 49th year, the 49th year would be a sabbatical year, and then the 50th year was a jubilee year. And it, too, was a sabbatical. So at that time, every 50 years, they would have a double sabbatical year, the 49th year and the 50th year, and then they would start over again. Now, this was important because God was also teaching them principles of finance that are different. Remember, at the beginning of this, I said we have to understand that when we look at the biblical pattern of economics in the Mosaic Law, it's not something that necessarily should be applied across the board to every nation. There are unique aspects of this that are related to uh, God's purpose for the nation Israel, and this is one of them. But it shows how ultimately economics is to be grounded in a trust in God. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release of debt. That meant that now there's a couple of different interpretations that have been uh, suggested for this. One is, uh, and I don't think this is likely because of the context, but one is that the debt wasn't completely erased or canceled. It was just uh, that, that you didn't ask for payment during the seventh year because if nobody's working, they can't produce anything to pay, pay off the debt. So they just put it on hold for the seventh year, and then they would continue to uh, repay the loan uh, the next year. But that doesn't really fit the context. What fits the context is that that it's completely eradicated. So as we look at these verses now, read the, the, the second verse says, and this is the form of the release. So God's not going to say, okay, uh, just release them. There, he gives more uh, specificity to the prescription. And this is the form of the release. Every creditor who has lent anything to his neighbor shall release it. He shall not require it of his neighbor or his brother because it is called the Lord's release. Now, let's take a situation where I'm going to give somebody a loan of $100,000. Now, if I'm thinking about it, I'm going to say, hmm, it's the sixth year. If I give him a loan of $100,000, at the end of the year, I've got to forgive that whole debt. I'm basically giving him a little bit less than $100,000. He won't be able to pay much back. So maybe I'll put some conditions on this because I don't want to lose all that money. Now, if we just had a sabbatical year and I loan uh, someone $100,000, then I can put it on a six-year payout plan and get most of it back in six years. Well, God's going to address that. Uh, he says, uh, he gives some stipulations in verse uh, verse 3 related to uh, the foreigner. If it's a foreigner, you can require it. In other words, you don't cancel the debt for the non-Israelite. Uh, but you shall give up your claim to what is owed by your brother. That's where I think it's clear that this is a complete cancellation of the debt. Except when there may be no poor among you. Now, when would that be? That would only come, according to the law, when the nation was obedient to God and being blessed, and then there would be abundance for everyone. But in years when they were uh, spiritually disobedient, then part of the uh, judgment was that there would be an increase in poverty. 
So the only exception to this would be when there might not be any poor among them. For the Lord will greatly bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance, only if you carefully obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe with care all these commandments which I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you just as he promised you. You shall lend to many nations. If, if, they were, if the Israelites were obedient to God, God would prosper them, to them so much that they would be lending to nations. To other nations and uh, investing uh, in other nations, and that would make them even more prosperous. You shall lend to many, many nations, but you shall not borrow. You shall reign over many nations, but they shall not reign over you. Verse 7, if there is among you a poor man of your brethren within any of the gates in your land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother. I just read that verse in the next verse. But you shall open your hand wide to him and willingly lend him sufficient for his need, whatever he needs. But wait a minute. What if it's the sixth year? I want to get my money back. Verse 9. Beware lest there be a wicked thought in your heart saying, The seventh year of the year of release is at hand, and your eye be evil against your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cry out to the Lord against you, and it becomes sin among you, you shall surely give to him, and your heart should not be grieved when you give to him, because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your works and in all to which you put your hand. Now, the principle here is that there's something that goes beyond the, the empirical data, the quantifiable empirical data of, of raw economic theory, and that is that there's a spiritual component to economics that God's built has built into the system. So that what he's teaching here is that that the principle is that you're to be generous because your trust is not in what you have and not in that money that your your brother needs. Your trust is in the Lord and if your trust is in the Lord and you freely give to your brother who is in need, you're trusting in the Lord because you know he will supply your need. Now, that's important to understand because of that is the idea that, that, that um, buttresses what's going on in Acts 5, which is where we're studying, when Barnabas and others who own land are selling their land, they're willingly selling it, giving it to the church so that that money would be distributed from the church leaders to those who are poor and those who were in need. And they're trusting that as they are functioning within the spiritual gift of giving, that God is the one who's going to ultimately supply their need. So they are not grasping onto what they have to keep it for themselves. They are willingly giving generously to sustain uh, others in the body of Christ. So verse 10, verse 11, and then we come to verse 11, which is a, another verse that we will uh, look at as we go through this uh, passage. For the poor will never cease from the land. Therefore, I command you, saying, You shall open your hand wide to your brother, to your poor, and your needy in your land. Okay, now, the first principle I was showing you is that the, 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 the principle that governs how we give and how we help those who are less fortunate is to be grace, compassion, and generosity. 
in the discourse there in Deuteronomy chapter 15, there is a concluding statement, a statement that is going to be quoted by Jesus. When Jesus said, the poor you have with you always, he didn't stop there. That's not all he said. There's a context. And if you take the text out of the context, you're left with a con job. Always remember that. So what we have to do is understand the original context here in Deuteronomy before we go to the uh, passage uh, in, in, uh, in Mark. Deuteronomy is a conclusion. Now this conclusion, concluding statement has two, uh, two clauses in it that must be understood separately. One clause is a description. The other clause is a prescription. I just say that because the words rhyme and it sounds good and it's good preaching, so I get a you know A minus in my homiletics class. Remember when you were in sixth grade and fifth grade or somewhere in there, and we were taught there were four kinds of sentences. One kind of sentence was a declarative sentence. It's just a statement of fact. It's not telling you whether it's good, whether it's bad. It's not telling you to do something or not to do something. It's just a statement of fact, a declarative sentence. Then you have an imperative sentence. And an imperative sentence tells you what to do in a certain situation or what not to do in a certain situation. That's a prescription. A description is a declarative sentence. It's just telling you what is there. Now, the first part of this verse is not a prescription. People have used it that way. Well, we'll always have the poor with us, so let's just move on down the road. No, this isn't a prescription to always have... He's not saying you should always have the poor with you. It's not a prescription. It's just a description. Reality, there will always be poor. There will always be wealthy. That's just the way it is. But what are we to do about it, given that scenario? That's the second part of the statement. You shall open your hand wide to your brother, to your poor and needy in your land. Now, this is the second time in four verses that this has been stated. The first time was back in verse 8. You shall open your hand wide to him and willingly lend him sufficient for his need, whatever he needs. That's grace. That is grace giving, and that is operating on the principle of loving your neighbor as yourself. So when we come to Deuteronomy 15.11... We recognize that the Bible recognizes that poverty is a universal reality. Throughout all time and throughout all cultures, there are those who are poor. Now, a corollary to that is that you can't, you can't end that problem. No matter what we do, there will always be the poor with us. Does that mean we shouldn't do anything? No, because the second half of the verse says, no, we're supposed to do something. Is this a government operation? No, it is not a government operation. It is a responsibility of each individual. And when the government steps in and makes it a public, a public policy rather than a policy of, of the private sector, it creates more problems because whenever you get a, an official government involvement in something, you create layers of bureaucracy. And layers of bureaucracy happen to be more prolific than rabbits. And bureaucrats begat bureaucrats. And the more bureaucrats you begat, the more of a bureaucracy you have and the more difficult it is to get anything done. A lot of you know Charlie Clough. Charlie spent many years working with the... Uh, 
working with the Air Force as a meteorological officer at Aberdeen Proving Ground. And uh, he has uh, told the story many times in my presence of a uh, sergeant he had there who was just a whiz at, uh, at getting things accomplished because the, the gover- you, you could fill a room of the, the size of this auditorium with all of the government regulations it takes to procure something. Now, when you think about everything that goes on in the, this new health care law and all of the procurement regulations that, and the layers that have been developed year after year after year within the federal government, you see how impossible it will be to get anything accomplished. They've just made it ten times more difficult to get it accomplished. And that's what happens with a public policy bureaucracy. So this is why God in his wisdom has put the responsibility for this within the private sector. People say, well, what happens if people don't do anything? Well, there may be some heartache and some problems for a while, but guess what? Somebody eventually steps to the plate and it gets resolved. And somebody is going to take ownership and leadership to solve the problem. Jay sent out an email some time ago after the fires that we had in uh, uh, up uh, north here in Magnolia, uh, about someone up in uh, a couple of women up in uh, the Woodlands area who went out to one of the su- uh, uh, support areas uh, up around Magnolia when all the fires were going on there, and they started organizing volunteers. And they went out and they they did this all from their own initiative. They saw a tremendous need to provide support from these people who were now uh, who had left their homes. Uh, need for groceries, need for food, need for uh, food and food preparation and provision for all the firefighters that were up there. And they started organizing everything, getting HEB and other grocery stores to donate food, and they set up just a tremendous operation. And then three days later, FEMA showed up. And FEMA's response was, y'all can't do any of this. You don't have you don't, you don't have the uh, proper health certification from the city and from the county to, uh, for all this food preparation and everything else. And everybody just looked at him and said, y'all get out of here. And uh, it went, kind of went up the chain of command at FEMA, and eventually somebody got fired, and they eventually looked at the pattern that what these women did in a remarkable way, showing their great Texas initiative, and they, they adopted that pattern uh, for FEMA. But it doesn't come from the government. It comes from individuals. And, of course, FEMA is going to mess it up down the road because that's the nature of bureaucracy. The poor are always with us, but that means we always have the responsibility to take care of those in need, especially when we get into the New Testament, that those within the family of God, those who are other believers. And historically, this is why orphanages, hospitals, uh, uh, places for uh, to take care of the poor were set up. This originated within Christianity. You didn't find that happening within Buddhism. You don't have that happening. You didn't have that happening in India under Hinduism. You didn't have that happening in any of the Islamic uh, uh, countries. Uh, it comes out of a Judeo-Christian background. You had it uh, occur within within Judaism. You have it occur within Christianity because there's a foundation for uh, grace and compassion uh, because it all comes out of the out of the um, Mosaic Law. 
So Deuteronomy 15:11 gives us that that foundation and then Mark 14:7 Jesus repeats that. So keep your place in Deuteronomy because we'll be back there before long. But let's just go to uh the was it the 15th cha- 14th chapter of Mark. Now, I chose this version because it's a a little fuller statement of the of the circumstances than than what you have in the other gospels, but Jesus repeats this in in the in the other gospels. Matthew and Luke uh, also record this, as well as John. One of the few things that's in all four, um, all four gospels. Jesus, uh, the context here, being in, in in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. So here's the context: He's at the house of Simon the leper. You know, I just wonder if we're going to still call him Simon the leper when he's in heaven. You know, Rahab, Rahab the. Rahab the hoe, you know, she still, we're going to still call her that in heaven. <laughs> Being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly, incredibly expensive spikenard. I mean, this was worth, for the average person in Jerusalem, this was probably worth uh, at least a year's income, maybe more. Very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask, poured it on his head, But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, why was this fragrant oil wasted? So these are the ones, well, we could have used this some other way. This is the self-righteous crowd. You have conservatives who are self-righteous and you have liberals that are self-righteous. We want to determine how every dime is spent. That's the mentality. No sense of grace, no sense of letting other people make their decisions. They want to make everybody's decision for them. Verse uh, 6, but Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always. See, that's the context. They wanted to, in their self-righteous rationalization, they wanted to take this, sell it, get the money, and and in their self-righteous, we're better than everybody else mentality, and we'll give it to the poor. And it's just amazing how many people, especially politicians, who always want to trot out the poor as justification for taking money from hardworking citizens. And one of these days, I'd like somebody to do a study and take all of these uh, bills that we have pa- that have been passed in Congress, that have been voted on by all manner of congressmen to take tax money from hardworking Americans and to redistribute it to the poor. And I'd like to see a list of all those who voted for that and then a comparison with how much they're personally giving from their wealth. And in many cases, these uh, congressional, uh, congressional representatives and senators are extremely wealthy. And when we look at their tax returns, they don't give but a pittance in charitable donations. Yet they are extremely generous with your hard-earned money and my hard-earned money, but they give nothing to the poor or to charitable causes. And that's really sad. I think that if you're a, a political, if you're a legislature, legislator in Congress and you're going to vote and impose a tax on, on the citizens, that a certain percentage of their income is going to go to support the welfare roles, then it needs to be made certain that that percentage comes directly off the top of their congressional pay and goes right into the 
the national coffer so that they can feel the bite. But that'll never happen. That's just my dream. Um, so Jesus, when he says this, for you have the poor with you always, he's not, this isn't, that's not his teaching point. In other words, he's not teaching about poverty here. He's teaching about generosity here. And he is challenging the uh, pseudo-compassionate mentality of the uh, self-righteous crowd. So he says, you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do them good. You know, and you should do them good. But right now, you, have, you do not have, right now I'm with you, and I'm not going to be with you always. And so this is an honorable thing to do. She has done what she could, and she has come to anoint my body. So we have to understand the context of both of these passages, that it's not a prescription for closing off your compassion, that they'll always be the poor, so let's move on down the road. But in both places, it's a realization that they're in a recognition of a genuine need and the responsibility of individuals, not governments, to meet that need. Okay, the next aspect that we should focus on when it comes to dealing with the poor is that it should be handled by genuine, equitable justice, what the Hebrew calls tzedakah. It is righteousness. Leviticus 19.15 sets the standard. Now remember, 19.18 said, you'll love your neighbor as yourself. This is only four verses prior to that. It connects righteousness with love. Real love is perfectly equitable and righteous. I pointed out last time that if we look at the tithing system, it was a flat rate for everyone in Israel, 10%. If you were poor, it was 10%. If you made $5 that year, it was 50 cents. If you made $5 million, you gave 10%. Uh, if you made $5 billion, you gave 10%, per, 10%. That was it. It was the same for everybody. That's the divine standard. That's what it means to be fair. Fair doesn't mean if you make more, you pay a higher percentage. Biblically, according to the Torah, that is unrighteous, not righteous. So Leviticus 19.15 says, You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. In other words, their economic status should not be a factor. If they're rich, if they're poor, they're treated the same way in the law. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness, but setic, in righteousness, according to the standard of God, you shall judge your neighbor. Now, in Proverbs 29.14, we have a somewhat similar statement. This is a more practical application because it's in the Proverbs. So I want you to turn with me to Proverbs 29. I told you we'd be jumping around a lot in this study, but I want you to see and understand these verses and especially look at them within their, within their context because they're not just isolated statements that sort of hang there on their own. Uh, Proverbs uh, 29, 14, the king who judges the poor with truth, his throne will be established 
forever. Now I want you to look just previously to verse verse 13. Verse 13 says, The poor man and the oppressor have this in common. The poor man is the one who's being oppressed. The oppressor is the one who is treating the poor person unrighteously. They have one thing in common. It's common grace. What we refer to theologically as common grace. The Lord gives light to the eyes of both. Now I want you to look at verse 12. Because the Lord gives light to the eyes of both, there is an equal responsibility toward God from both. That's the point. Look back at verse 12. If a ruler pays attention to lies, okay, here you have a king, it just said a little differently, here you have a king who's building policy on that which is false, that which is not aligned with reality. If a ruler pays attention to lies, all his servants become wicked. Let's paraphrase that and modernize it. If a ruler pays attention to Marxism, then all his servants become wicked. If a ruler pays attention to socialism, then all of his servants become wicked. I think the application is pretty obvious. Because then the government puts itself in the business of legalized theft in order to uh, redistribute wealth on the basis of the government's concept of what is equitable, not on the basis of fairness, in ter- and, and, and in doing that, it violates the principle of treating the rich and the poor impartially. So verse 14 then says, the king who judges the poor with truth in contrast to the ruler who pays attention to lies. This indicates that there is an absolute truth and everything else is a lie. And the wise king is the king that listens to the truth. And in the context of Proverbs, in the context of the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, the truth is the Torah, the word of God. The king who judges the poor with truth, his throne will be established forever. Now, ultimately, there's only one king who's going to do that, and that's going to be the Messiah king, the Lord Jesus Christ, whose throne will be established forever according to the covenant that God made with David. So Proverbs 29.14 reinforces the principle of judgment according to righteousness. No injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor or honor the mighty. It's equitable, fair for both. And that's the basis for the king judging with the truth. Now then we come to the next sort of issue, which is dealing with usury. Now usury is one of those funny little words. Here's a definition from the Oxford English Dictionary. It's the practice of lending money at unreasonably high rates of interest. Now I want you to notice, they interpreted the word. They interpreted to mean unreasonably high rates of interest. That's not what the original means. The only way we get to the meaning of the original is to look at the context because the idea is not necessarily inherent within the word. This is one of those ideas that has been uh, massively misunderstood and has been the uh, uh, cause of much, uh, much social turmoil and anti-Semitism throughout the history of Christianity. Even many, many Jewish interpreters 
have not actually understood this. That That's one approach is to try to interpret that usury is unreasonably high interest. But that's not what it, that's not what it means. In the Middle Ages, the Christian church prohibited usury, which meant for them it was any charging of interest. This led to a pretty stale economy for quite a number of centuries, and it wasn't until uh, as, as they got further into the Middle Ages that they began to understand that there was a basis for uh, lending money and recouping a certain amount of return from the money that was lent. They had to jump through a lot of hoops that the Roman Catholic Church set up to do that, and they sort of allowed the Jews to go off into ghettos so that the Jews could be the bankers for the rest of the world because according to the Mosaic Law, the Jews couldn't charge the way they interpreted it. They couldn't charge interest to other Jews, but they could to non-Jews, so they could make money that way. And since the Jews were the ones who made money by investment, those evil Jewish capitalists, at least that's what one of the signs at the... uh, uh, Occupy Wall Street said, they would get blamed. So this would then be a justification rationale that was used in the Middle Ages to justify uh, anti-Semitism. But I want to show you something in just a few of these passages. The general principle is still love your neighbor as yourself, even if your neighbor is your servant or your worker or your hired hand. If you follow this principle as management, you'd never have labor unions because you're going to treat your employee just exactly how you would want to be treated, with generosity. Deuteronomy 24, 14. You know, it always has has bothered me. Christian organizations pay the most penurious salaries. They don't understand generosity. If you're going to find generosity in pay scales anywhere, it ought to be with a Christian organization. But yet I know too many Christian organizations, they hire somebody and they pay them a third of what they would get for a comparable wage in the in, in the marketplace. And that's just not right. That is really an affront to God and an affront to grace. Deuteronomy 24, 14, You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether one of your brethren or one of the aliens who is in your land within your gates. Now, this is the general, uh, the general precept. Don't oppress a hired servant that he should be treated well, not poorly. Verse, uh, then we have Exodus 22:25 expands that a little bit. If you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest. Now, who's he talking about? Is he talking about lending money to build contractor down the street so that he can then have the funds to build houses and sell them and make money and from his profit repay the, repay the loan and make a living. Is that what this is talking about? No. Who's he lending money to? He's lending money to the person who's impoverished, who has no resources. And so he is prohibited from charging interest to the impoverished person. Don't take advantage of the poor. Let's look at another passage, Leviticus 25, 35, and 35 to 38. If one of your brethren becomes poor, we talked about this passage earlier, and falls into poverty among you, then you shall help him like a stranger or sojourner that he may live with you. Then the next verse says, take no usury or interest from him, but fear your God that your brother may live with you. What's the issue here? Who's he talking about? Is he talking about lending money to someone so that they can uh, expand their business? No. 
he's not talking about investing capital here. They're talking about giving money, loaning money to poor people who have no means. Verse 37, you shall not lend him your money for usury nor lend him your, your food at profit. Don't, in other words, don't take advantage of the poor person. And then God reinforces it. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. This is another one of those statements where God reminds everybody, I'm saying this, this isn't Moses' opinion. Okay, Proverbs 28, 8. One who increases his possessions by usury and extortion gathers it for him who will pity the poor. What's the context again? It has something to do with the poor. Ezekiel eighteen seventeen, uh, Who has withdrawn his hand from the poor and not received usury or increase. Again, the context has to do with the poor. Um, the, the issue with usury wasn't putting your money to work to make money charging interest, it had nothing to do with that. It had to do with with giving money, providing money to the poor and charging them interest when they had no resources. That wasn't loving your neighbor as yourself. And so we see that, that due to a failure to pay attention to context, the tax was taken out of the context and Western civilization got conned for thousands of years by these uh, usury laws that completely distorted the meaning, uh, the meaning of Scripture. Okay, next time we'll come back, continue our little walk through the Old Testament teaching on the poor, and get into a few more things in the in the Proverbs, and then probably get to a point where we get into uh, the New Testament and wrap some of these things up. But what's the principle in dealing with the poor? Individual responsibility. It's the individual responsibility of other, every other person in that culture, that society, who's their neighbor, to help take care of them. They're part of the family. And it has to do with grace and generosity. Don't close your hand, but open your hand. But it's not the government's responsibility, because when the government's taking all this money out of my pocket to put into their wasteful spending welfare program, then not only does the poor person get less... They become dependent, and it destroys their uh, their own confidence and their ability and their initiative to go to work, and it limits my resources, so now I don't have anything left to give anybody, and I don't get to participate in the blessing that God would provide if I could be generous to those in need. And so, once again, the government starts acting like God, and we have a messianic complex functioning in government. This has been going on for at least at least 125 or 130 years in, in the U.S., and it's a totally bogus mentality toward government and the poor, and it is self-destructive. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study the Word and be reminded that we do have a responsibility to take care of those in our periphery that are less fortunate, that are in need. And, Father, that uh, it is to be a manifestation of our own grace grace orientation as we understand that we've done nothing to earn or deserve our salvation, but we have the riches in Christ because you have given that freely to us, though we did not deserve it. We were at enmity with you, but you loved us in such a way that you gave us your only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Father, we ask that you'd help us as we think through these things and think through how to apply them in our own personal life. In Christ's name, amen.